We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Fight of Their Lives, by John Rosengren, published by Lions Press. Uh, John has uh, written uh, eight books, I believe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. eight books, including, for my own money, the uh, one of my favorite books from last year, the Hank Greenberg book, Hero of Heroes, which uh, was fantastic. And, and I got to talk about it here, so I feel like I'm coming home. You are. So yeah. please join me as we say welcome home to John Rosenberg. Thank you. And I guess the, the best place to start with this one is how did this whole book project come about? Well, I mean, like many of you probably, I'd seen this photograph and uh, wondered, you know, what happened? What happened beforehand that led up to this moment of Marshall clubbing Roseboro in the head with his bat? And then what happened afterward? And as I got into it and learned more about the events that preceded this and I think caused this uh, violent moment, the nastiest moment in baseball history, and then the what followed or what transpired, how these two guys turned it into uh, an occasion of reconciliation. I just thought, this is my kind of story. i got to write it. Because I'm always looking for stories. I love baseball. I mean, you know, it's like I read the sports pages first, so that's where I find a lot of my stories. But I'm also looking for the stories with a social or cultural dimension. And this one had it on several levels. And so I thought, there's my next book. And I think... Uh Probably a lot of our crowd knows, mm-hmm. but a lot of the people listening to the podcast may not. So I'm just, just gonna, how good looking I am. Yeah, that, well, that yeah. no, that yeah. they know. Yeah. Uh, the last paragraph of the uh, prologue, I'm just going to read, and then mm-hmm. that'll get us going. Uh, the battle at Candlestick meshes and crushes for 14 full minutes, all the while and long afterward, leaving those who saw it and those who didn't to wonder. What happened to start this madness? So if you could just kind of take it from there. Okay. I know that's a lot, but... Yeah. Wow, that's like 180 (laughs) pages. Um, So uh, this is 1965. It's Dodgers-Giants, you know, the most storied rivalry in all of sports. And they're locked in a tight pennant race. Just a game and a half separates the two teams. They come to San Francisco uh, to play a four-game series. And um, it's late in the summer, 1965. It's been, uh, the Associated Press called it the Summer of Fury. You know, a lot of uh, different tensions from Vietnam to uh, the racial riots. And Juan Marshall's, and both of these men, the protagonists in the story, Marshall and Roseboro, have been impacted personally by these events. Marshall's a Dominican, and there's a civil war being fought in the Dominican Republic. President Johnson had committed 20,000 troops to stop or to prevent another Cuba from happening in the Caribbean. And so Marshall is watching during the course of the season these scenes on television of the bloody battle being fought in Santo Domingo. And he's literally <laughs> worried sick about his family's safety. There's no telephone back in the family farm, so he writes a letter and it takes a week for the letter to get there and then a week for it to get back. By the time it gets back, he doesn't know if it, you know, his family is still safe. So he's got this terrible sinus infection that's been plaguing him the whole season. And Willie Mays, his teammate, said Juan was so distraught he shouldn't have been pitching that year. Well, then John Roseboro is a black man living in South Central L.A., and the Watts riots had just occurred. The week before, from Dodger Stadium, 
players could see the smoke rising from the south of the buildings burning in Watts. And Marsh, or Roseboro, love this guy, because he'd read the sports pages first all the time, too. He's, for the first time, he started reading the front page and really being concerned about the racial tensions in America. And he wondered, why are we still playing baseball when this is, you know, what's happened to our country? And when we got to this point, one night the demonstrators were scheduled to pro t- or march down the street in front of his house, and so he sat on his front stoop that night with a loaded gun, ready to protect his family and his his property. And this is how deeply or you know closely impacted he was by the events. And then um, you get to the series, this tight four-game series. There's been bad blood between the two teams beforehand, and it culminates on this Sunday, August twenty-second, nineteen sixty-five. And uh, personally, I, I was a kid at the time, so I don't, I didn't remember all the uh, intricacies uh, of the on the field part of it. But if you could just kind of take us through, because uh, it was kind of different than what normally happens to start a fight. Putting aside yeah. all of this, the, the backdrop, which is amazing, yeah. But the actual fight itself, usually it's from the pitcher coming this direction. So yes. if you could kind of just. Yeah, it's almost a fight in reverse with the pitcher at bat and the catcher uh, throwing the beanball. Right. But the brushback. But so there um, been bad blood be- earlier in the series between the two teams and yelling back and forth. In the the game on Sunday, August twenty second, Marshall had knocked down Ron Fairley and Maury Wills of the Dodgers, and so Koufax had thrown a pitch over Willie May's head in retaliation. But when Marshall came to bat for the first time in the bottom of the third inning, baseball's code called for Koufax to put Marshall in the dirt. Now, it's kind of a, a myth that Marshall, or sorry, that Koufax didn't throw at people because he did. He didn't want to throw at their heads because he knew he could kill them and he didn't want to do that. Koufax was a good guy. But he, uh, just earlier in that season, had plunked Lou Brock in the ribs when Brock had shown him up by stealing uh, a couple bases on him. And so he was willing to do that. But the home plate umpire, Shay Crawford, had already warned both benches, any more brushbacks and I'm going to eject the pitcher. Well, obviously the Dodgers don't want to lose Koufax that early in the game in this critical matchup. So John Roseborough, the Dodger catcher, says, listen, I'll take care of it. So he uh, first pitch low and outside, or a curveball, you know, outside. Marshall isn't sure what's going to happen, right? But he's waiting, he sees that, and he kind of relaxes a little bit, thinks, okay, maybe I'm okay. Well, then... Uh, Roseboro called for a low inside pitch, the second one, got it, deliberately dropped the ball, stood up, threw it back past Marshall's head. Marshall said it was so close that it nicked his ear. Think about that for a minute. If you're the batter and you're standing at the plate, you're looking out at the pitcher, and suddenly this ball comes from three feet behind you, (laughs) past your face. I mean, he was, uh, you know, startled, scared, angry. He turned. And he saw Roseboro coming at him in his full catcher gear, ready, in, you know, with mask and everything, and ready, in, in Roseboro's own words, to annihilate Marshall. So Marshall takes a step back and, bam, brings the bat down on, on Roseboro's head. Not at all to excuse Marshall doing that. I mean, he was first to admit it was wrong and he felt immediate guilt. But I think it helped us understand why he acted as he did, knowing that context. And so he brings the bat down, opens a tourist gash, in Roseboro's uh, scalp, and you know, blood's pouring down, and it touches off this 14-minute brawl. <coughs> and and you wear a batting helmet at that time. Exactly. Yeah, and I just read something about who was the first to do that. But he, but he, um, yeah, he just had the mask on, and I think the mask deflected the blow. And um, so he, you know, because really, Marshall could have killed him, right? But he ended up um, 
catch him right here and it split the skin, I think. And he gave, got a slight concussion, but it, I think the mask must have deflected part of it. But you're right, he didn't have a helmet on. And uh, what you get into, what, what was the media coverage at that time? It was a different time, 1965. So what was the right. reaction by the media? Right. Well, the, the, the bulletin went out and people read it on stations and, you know, like I, there's video clips on YouTube you can see of um, it being, the news being delivered during a Mets game. But the um, main image that people saw was in the, you know, this and a couple other images printed in Sports Illustrated and Life magazine. And so that was how people saw the event and how they interpreted it. And this, of course, casts Marshall as the villain and um, uh, Roseborough as the victim. And Roseborough embraced that role. He sued Marshall several days afterward and said, you know, um, Marshall had provoked the incident. And then he also said Marshall's punishment should be 10 minutes in a room alone with me. So he kind of embraced that role of victim. Whereas Marshall wasn't the kind of guy to really go around hitting people in the head with bats. He was a fun-loving, practical-joking guy, ready to smile. His nickname when he was in uh, Tacoma in the minor leagues was Laughing Boy. He had this cherubic, you know, easy smile. He was a family man. He was married. had a couple of young kids already. He was a devout Catholic. He recited three of his favorite psalms every evening. He prayed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. He went to Sunday Mass. Even when the team was on the road, he'd find a Catholic church and go to Mass. And so he wasn't this kind of guy, you know, he got castigated and, and stereotyped as the hot-blooded Latin you know, quick to fly off the handle. But that wasn't who he was. He was a, a fun-loving family man with a devout uh, faith who, during the heat of a moment, behaved rashly, and it forever haunted him. And before we get to the next step, just you did a, that's a, a terrific description of, of what he was like. If you could just describe a little bit about what John Roseborough was like. John Roseborough was a quiet guy whose teammates, of course, nicknamed him Gabby. But he also had he had a great wit, and when he did speak, it was often something really funny. He was a great defensive catcher. Marshall, I should mention too, you know, great pitcher uh, as well. Um, his pit, the pitchers really respected Roseboro and his his knowledge of how to run the the game and call pitches, but also you know defensively to quarterback the, the team. And he was a guy who, uh, when he was a kid, he wanted to be a cop or an FBI agent. But his uh, first wife and uh, his daughter both told me, you know, he wanted to be tougher than he really was. <laughs> he had a reputation for being real tough with plays at the plate and buzzing the base. He called him the Rock of Gibraltar. Uh, he was the kind of guy you didn't want to run into or have a collision with at the plate. But he was also um, kind of one of these guys on the inside who was a lot warmer than he let on and, and not as tough as he, he aspired to be. <laughs> and as you started to do the research for the book, for the people that you interviewed, well, you actually, uh, John Roseborough had passed away by yeah. before this, but... That was a really tough interview to get. Yeah. That, that's not easy. <laughs> had to do Although some writers do yeah. get those sometimes, I don't know. Uh, and Mar- but Marischal, obviously uh, living in the uh, Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. and... Uh, there you go. Thanks. Thanks. And... Uh, what other people besides... Well, first you could talk about that interview, but what other people that you spoke with uh, are there any interesting stories along the way in the research for this? Well, I also was able to speak to Roseboro's second wife before she passed away. Um, I talked to his uh, nephew, um, John, or yeah, John Roseboro's um, nephew, and uh, you know, and, and Marsha or Roseboro's 
um, second wife's daughter, who basically Roseboro raised. And, um, you know, she just talked about what a kind and gentle guy he was and how she'd bring... And, and But also, after, this is after he retired. You know, he loved to tell stories, and her friends would come over. You know, and she's a teenager. And she said... She'd, she'd kind of look around and say, where'd they go? They'd be downstairs in the John's Den hanging out with him. He'd be telling them stories and stuff and entertaining them. And so she said it was kind of like, uh, you know, Huck, Doc, uh, Bill Cosby, Dr. Huxtable. Cashman is that sort of um, person. So it was, uh, those are the kinds of things that sort of surprised me. You know, I didn't realize that side of, of Roseboro. You know, I kind of knew him as a player. But as I got into it, I realized that there was much more depth to him as a person. And the, the, the chapter, which I, I, it was really beautiful, I, it's my personal favorite chapter, uh, it's entitled, Johnny, I Need Your Help. Uh, if you could just talk yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, um, so Marshall got fined $1,750, which doesn't seem like much today, right? A guy can make that for waking up in the morning. But uh, at the time, it was a record amount. The ba- organized baseball hadn't fined anybody that much money at all, so that seemed like a big fine. And as a part of his sixty thousand dollars salary, that was a, you know he felt that. Also, he was suspended eight playing dates plus the series that the Giants played over Labor Day, two games in Los Angeles. So he had uh, you know jiggerous starts, and it may have even cost the, the Giants the pennant. Chuck Feeney, the uh, Giants um, president, thought it did cost him the pennant, but. Um, the biggest consequence for Mar- for Marshall was the own personal guilt he felt over doing this, and he carried that guilt, the weight of that guilt. You know, I said he's this devout man. His mother raised him. He told me when you know if he did something wrong, yeah, he had to apologize, and he made this public apology, but hadn't really spoken to, to Roseboro personally. So he carried this guilt. Well, then there's an additional consequence. He had the numbers to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, he, 243 uh, career victories, um, great strikeout to walk ratio. Um, I think 244 complete games. Think about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> David Price had to get two this year. That's you know? um, <laughs> probably the most the league. But it, so he, he was this extraordinary pitcher. Should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. But he oh, 52 career shutouts. I think. Um, but he didn't get in because when the members of the Baseball Writers Association were voting, they remembered this incident and held it against him. And so the first year of eligibility, Bob Gibson got in, but he got over 100, and it was his first time on the ballot too, he got over 100 more votes than, than uh, Juan Marshall. And, and Gibson said, no way you know, am I that much better a pitcher. Uh, you know, I think Juan was the greatest. And that was the other thing. Marshall had won more games in the 60s than any other pitcher. I mean, more than Drysdale, more than Koufax, more than Gibson. He still didn't get it. So the second year, he didn't get in again. <laughs> and so it's this, this is, um, incident with Marshall, or with Roseboro, the fight, you know, has tarnished his reputation. It has cost him a place in the Hall of Fame. So he reached out to, to Roseboro. Can I read, may I read that passage? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. It's, I have it marked. Okay. It's about 20 pages. <laughs> <laughs> No, he, so, so uh, Marshall, um, <clears throat> at the time, Roseboro was um, living in L.A. with his wife, Barbara, and Barbara Fausch, and they had set up an ad, or a PR agency uh, in Los Angeles. Marshall had not campaigned on his own behalf. He had simply waited to see how the writers voted. But as the year 1982 wore on, he decided he might be able to influence the outcome. So he called John Roseboro at Fausch Roseboro and Associates. Johnny, 
I need your help, Juan said. Johnny knew how Juan had suffered at the hands of the press in the immediate aftermath of their fight. And still now, 17 years later, with every article written about that day and every vote withheld by the Baseball Writers Association members, that bothered him. The guilt he felt, for his part, had never completely left him. Here was his chance to let Juan know he wasn't angry at him any longer. Okay, he said. They came up with the idea that Johnny would play in Juan's charity golf tournament in the Dominican Republic. The public gesture would provide opportunities for press coverage in the Caribbean and the United States. Johnny and Barbara agreed to conduct their most heartfelt public relations campaign. In December, Johnny, Barbara, and 10-year-old Nikki flew to the Dominican Republic. The marshals welcomed them warmly to their Santo Domingo home. Johnny and Juan, who had competed against each other and twice occupied the same clubhouse at All-Star Games, had never really talked to one another meaningfully. Over meals and poolside, the two ex-ball players, who seemed so different on the surface, one Latin, the other American, one an extrovert, the other an introvert, one a devout Catholic with six children, the other a remarried divorcee with a stepdaughter, they realized they had much in common. They shared an abiding love of baseball, competitive spirits, and an appetite for laughter. They both came from humble beginnings, had endured racism, and had experienced success. And surprise of surprises, they enjoyed one another's company. The golf tournament was a success. Juan and John gave a press conference and posed for photos. They said that the sports writers had made too much of their altercation in 1965, that it had simply been a game that had gone bad, and that they were not enemies. Johnny pointedly said that day should be forgotten and advocated for Marshall's election into the Hall of Fame. The Dominican papers recorded their remarks and published the photos. The message back to the United States in general and the Baseball Writer Association members in particular was clear. We're friends now. You can't hold this against us any longer. But those seven days in the Dominican Republic proved far more significant than a choreographed publicity stunt. Juan had finally delivered a personal apology to Johnny, and Johnny had deliberately forgiven Juan. Their interaction relieved both men of the weight that had burdened them for 17 years. Johnny and his wife and daughter, they really forgave me, Juan said. That took a big load from my body. I knew I had made a mistake, and it had been hard for me to live with that on my conscience. When Johnny forgave me, I was so happy. Well, should I fast forward to... Sure, what sure. happened? Okay. Yeah. Is that okay? <laughs> so, so here's what happened. Um, Juan's career became complete the day he received a phone call from Jack Lang, the Baseball Writer Association's national secretary. Congratulations, Lang said. Marshall had received 83.6% of the vote. He became the first living Latin ball player to be elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I don't think any person on earth now is happier than I am, Marshall said. He was so excited. He called Alma back in the Dominican to tell her the news. That's his wife. He also called Johnny Roseboro. I'm going to Cooperstown, he said, and choked up. Thank you. Thank you. And both men cried. Yeah. So that's the beginning, then, of this friendship that develops between these two men. And, um, you know, you think about it, you see them here, and you think, how could those guys ever be, be pals? And lo uh, and behold, they found it in them to, uh, you know, forgive the other and to, to assuage their own guilt. And forg- um, they apologized, forgave one another, and, and realized they liked one another and became friends. Well, I think that's a, gr- a good spot to 
open it to our crowd of experts for any uh, questions. Well, it would have been nicer if Marshall had apologized before we've been rejected the first three times for the whole thing. Also, the eight-game suspension, he missed two starts with Earl Allen White, missed five-game five suspension, but still the only umpire you get from my concussion. Yeah. And if you're familiar with Joshua Brady's book, he claims uh, the time that Herman Franks was managing the Giants, they had set up that scoreboard system, they were stealing signs yet. Right, they don't yeah. really feel any sympathy for the Giants, and they lost the penalty. <coughs> yeah, yeah. So you're not a Giants fan. He's actually the president of the Giants well, Preservation. Let's, let's, oh, you are? Okay. What's so interesting about that is that they actually, their offense actually suffered. It was their pitching that, that drove them in that drive. In I did read Josh Prager's book. I really like that. And that's actually what inspired my um, Hank Greenberg book because I, I thought there got to be other dramatic home runs like this that have finished a season, right? And actually, six years before Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard around the world, Greenberg hit a grand slam on the final day of the 1945 season to clinch the pennant for the, uh, you know, in the ninth inning, final day of the season, clinch the pennant for the uh, Tigers. Um, and at the time, the New York Times called it the most dramatic home run ever hit in baseball. Of course, he lived with that glory for six years. So <laughs> <laughs> stage, I mean, there's two New York teams. I mean, well, exactly, you know, playoff and everything. So, it was, yeah, it was a big deal. Um, but, yeah, that's a good book by Josh. Mm-hmm. What happens when uh, Roseboro was adopted suddenly? He was a minor league baseball player for several years. Um, he played with the Mets. Yeah. You know, he's in the Mets organization, and he topped out at AAA, and never, you know, was able to, to overcome that that final hurdle to make that that final leap into the big leagues. And so he played. I, I want to say seven years, and then um, finally cashed in and moved on. And you know, I'm. I'm not, um, I want to say he coached for a while, but I I'm not sure what he's doing right now. Actually, just a little, kind of a follow-up off of that, which you, you go into in depth in the book, is John Roseboro's post-playing career yeah. as a coach and, and how he was kind of brought in uh, with, uh, I think, the Angels, or was it the, uh, the Angels, Angels organization yeah. Yeah, yeah. because of potential trying to calm down their race issues. Yes. It just, uh, if you could just talk a little bit about what, what his life was like post-career in, within baseball. Yeah, okay. Well, he, he wanted to manage. And, you know, so often catchers make good managers because they're the guys who see the whole field and are calling the game and are, you know, in the days before the managers were calling the, the pitches, the catchers were doing that, and, and he was one of those. And so he, um, he, want, he wanted to manage. Of course, he was a black man, and in the 60s there were no African-American managers in the major leagues. And it wasn't here's a trivia question for all the smart baseball fans <laughs> out there. Who is the first African American manager? Uh, Wrong. Uh, Who? Uh, uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, but that's what, it, that's what they always say. Frank Robinson was the first African American hired to manage in the major leagues, but he wasn't. It's a, it's one of these obscure trivia <laughs> questions, you know. That's not really fair. There was, but, it, there was a guy who he he managed briefly. <laughs> Nobody else? Butch? Buck O'Neill? No. no, he should have been. But, uh, yeah. coach. No, Ernie Banks. 
in uh, May, I want to say May 10th, 1973, he was an assistant coach with the um, Cubs, of course, and Whitey Lachlan got ejected from a game, <laughs> and so Banks took over, and he managed, you know, like last two innings, or, or maybe it was six innings, because uh, it was earlier in the game, So he, and, and he won the game, <laughs> so he had a perfect record as a, as one game as a manager. But um, he's like never gets credit for that, you know. And it's like he's the guy who broke the barrier. <laughs> probably because of the Cubs, because they actually had management by committee. They had four guys managing the club yeah. the same year. So, yeah. So, so, yeah. Another great success. Yeah. Was he the first bench uh, black uh, bench coach? No, that was Buck O'Neill. I'm pretty sure, yeah. like in 1960, yeah. or two, so I want to say. The first black coach. Yeah. yeah. Now, mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a separate yeah. Jeopardy. Yes. Yes. Exclusively. Yes. Oh, there should be. That's a great idea. But but Frank <laughs> Robinson gets credit for me. Imagine the arguments they're going to have. Yeah. Answers. It's not going to be so Yeah. But Frank Robinson was the first African American hired to manage, and really, you know, gets credit for for breaking the barrier through the two years that he managed. And or three it's probably years. Probably romantic that is lasting for Robinson as well. Yeah. Ah, I think coincidence. Yeah. yeah. Something something interesting. That they both were classy guys. It's like the internet because I don't know if a lot. Of, well, first of all, number one is Bob Costas also, um, you know, has a, um, a segment, one of those fifteen twenty minute segments where you know yeah. he introduced him. He did Harvey Haddock, did a couple of things. But the interesting thing is, a lot of Dodgers did that. They didn't make the money they make today. Like Stone Jay the other day, right? You know, and of course, go back. Drysdale was on television in the old um, Lawman episode, in the old Brady Bunch episode. But there's how many people know this? That on Dragnet, Johnny Roseboro played a cop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, living in LA, of course, he had the opportunity. He was on Mr. Ed. He did a couple other uh, TV and future You saw that whole segment, right? Remember, was a cop, and, 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 and Jack Webb, who dragged and he said to him, you know, the criminal, he's grilling him and nasty. He said to him, the department doesn't question his color, don't you do it. Do you remember that? I, I don't. I don't remember that. But, you know, I realized. Well, they ought to, you know. They, I mean, like Lou Gehrig, you know, did a screen test and got turned down because his thighs were too big. Yeah. But I, I forgot that I didn't finish the about. I got sidetracked about um, uh, Roseboro being a manager. You know, he he didn't really get the chance, and very few did get the chance. Like Maury Wills, Larry Doby did, did get a chance. But <clears throat> there was this rap, you know, against uh, obviously unfair against the African Americans. And it wasn't until Al Campanis spoke that unspoken conventional wisdom that Roseboro felt like the doors open for opportunity. You remember in 1986 uh, on the um, 40th anniversary? Am I doing that right? The math? 87. Yeah, but what, for some reason I've got 86, but it must have been 87. Um, April 15th, he's on Nightline and tells Ted Koppel that he doesn't think that African Americans have the intellectual capabilities to be general managers or field managers. And Koppel tries to give him an out, and he, he said, surely, you, you know, you really mean that? He says, no, it's just like they can't swim either. Well, Roseboro is a great swimmer, <laughs> um, but he also would have been a great manager. And everyone I talked to said that. But Roseboro said when he heard Campanis say that, he thought, okay, now it's out of the bag, and, it's, and this is, you know, the, the backlash is going to provide some opportunity. And it did. The Dodgers called him up. They asked him to manage in their Arizona Fall League. And then they gave him a chance to manage in the Dominican Republic. Um, and there he and Juan were able to visit and, you know, uh, see each other. Um, this was in the 1991 uh, winter season. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Roseboro had a heart attack. He got flown to Miami. Um, during this during the game, he had a heart attack. He got flown to Miami. Uh, 
in Peter O'Malley's private jet to get medical treatment. He's in the hospital. The doctors want him to stay, but his team's winning. He said, no, if they're winning, I'm going back. So he went back. They won the Caribbean World Series. But by then, Roseboro's health um, was starting to really become an issue, and he, he didn't go back to the Dominican to manage, and he didn't manage again. And it's unfortunate, because I think he would have been a good good manager, you know, and he just, and Bob Short had promised him with the Angels he'd get the chance, and he didn't. So it's, it's unfortunate. It's the same, the same reason why I agree with him, right, Jake? The, the same reason that um, John Roseboro would have been a good manager, because he parallels with another gentleman, black gentleman, who would have been a great manager, Elton, Elton Howard. Howard. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and unfortunately, weren't given the opportunities, right? Yeah. It, yeah. So we could go out on uh, that all night, but what else? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I don't think, I think Colfax holds some kind of record for not hitting batters, but, uh-huh. you know, and considering what, how, obviously, he was dominant, what he could have done had he done so. But yeah. more important, yeah. I'm the Mr. Ed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ed hits the ball, and Roseboro's the catcher. So you have to see. The one with the Rochers in the episode? The Rochers the only one speaking. Oh. Mr. Ed hits the ball, and Roseboro's the catcher. Other than the horse. We're all going to leave and look it up on YouTube, yeah. right? Yeah. That's, that's good. Well, and um, what else do you see? Um, um, Mr. Ed, and uh, shoot, what did you say before that? Uh, Oh, Kofax. Oh, Kofax, yeah, yeah. Cool. I'm not as, I mean, I'm one of those, I was a Dodgers fan until yeah. the sort of pitch to an ex-giant named Jack Clark. Yeah. The good story is I, I was working, was going to work the World Series, mm-hmm. at least the middle three games. So I would have been in L.A., but the sort of pitch to Clark. My father came home from work. I said, I'll never root for them. He said, yeah, I heard this a million times. And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and won once, so I missed one. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, what I was going to say about that is uh, Koufax didn't have to throw at guys because he had Don Drysdale as That's a teammate, true. right? And Drysdale <laughs> had no hesitation or reservation throwing at guys, right? I think some and of the guys on the, you know, they, Maury Wills was always, you know, he didn't mind it, but they knew he didn't. And as you said, yeah. he was supposed to. Now, by the way, it, it's, it's really a great story that transcends sports. As I said, I was 10. I was a big Dodger fan. Again, but never disliked the Giants because I don't mm-hmm. really like Willie Mays as much as anyone. But it, it really transcends sports. We, thank you for writing. Well, thanks. And it's, you know, the, there are all these cultural issues. And, and I get into the way that dark skinned Latinos are treated as well. And, um, you know, coming here in the United Sta- to the United States. And, you know, there are all the challenges. The big one is not speaking the language, right? But then also having to live with Jim Crow. Laws that are completely foreign to them, and 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 trying to understand that, you know, how can people think this way? And a guy like Vic Power, you know, who uh, is in the Yankees system and and doing great, but they keep saying, "Nice, no, he's not good enough." Or he's a poor fielder, right? And then he goes on to win was it six Gold Gloves, and and it was he would have won more if they had the award when he first started in the majors. So um, there's there all those challenges too. But yeah, it's it's like it's for. I see it as this is the story of America, right? In the times, and these two guys are in the context of those times. Yeah. I have a related story to that. Yeah. When I was, uh, my first job in the minors, it was a Pittsburgh age team in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. And I had seven Latins on the team. This was 1978, because they were That's trying right. to find another Roberto. Yeah. And Branch the III was the scouting director. And um, when they came up, you know, the kids not only did have the issue, first of all, I had to go down the block to the bars and everything and say, look, either my whole team is welcome or no one's coming in, you yeah. know, number one. 
because I knew that I was hit right away with all the prejudice still there from 78. And in fact, across the street from our ticket office was what they called the Key Club. And the Key Club down south there was that it was a private club and you paid a dollar to get the key, but they wouldn't sell it to you unless you were white. Mm-hmm. And it was basically like a Blarney stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, to lunch kind of them, but that was how they kept things separate. So I had to kind of go around, you know, the town and explain what the situation was going to be. Mm-hmm. But I had seven Latins on the team, only one spoke English, and he was 17. Um, at the time, uh, Junior Ortiz, who went by Alberto Ortiz, didn't even tell me. I guess he stuttered, and they said he was nervous about his English, so he didn't help, even though he lived in Brooklyn for a while or something. <laughs> and I had this one kid who was like accident prone, and just think balls hit him, everything was going wrong for this kid. I had to take him in the middle of the game to the hospital, and I only spoke French, so it, it didn't really help. But filling out forms, I literally took a calendar and kept flipping until he could point his birthday because I'd forgotten to take the roster in the rush. Yeah. And then he had to have four teeth pulled. And the dentist comes out another day, and he comes out and with the ball player, you know. And he says, well, you, I'm not going to take responsibility for telling him. I have to pull 14. He's got access to something in his mouth. So I went in and just used hand language with four, you know, and he ran like anything. The pain was so bad. But then we had this issue with medication. Mm-hmm. And the strong medication, the painkillers were in English. And now I'm trusting a 17-year-old to, to make sure that he gave the dosage correctly because they weren't going to be putting Spanish to explain that. Yeah. So there were all these issues that would come up and the kid was very homesick, he wasn't performing and Branch came to visit, it was a doubleheader and he said, what's going on? This kid is not the kid I sent up from Florida. And we're like, we don't know. He, between games of the doubleheader, he actually sat and talked with the kid and said, came back and said he was just homesick and needed somebody to talk to. He was a different yeah. player from then on. Yeah. It, it was just very amazing how just the nuances that you have to really understand What's happening, especially when you have so many and they're all going to live together in one house, they're not going to assimilate when you have that many in one team. Yeah. You know, it's a challenge. Yeah. Well, and you make a good point about just those difficulties in living in a foreign culture and understanding it's not, it goes beyond just the language, right? And um, that's, I mean, unless one has lived in another culture and not spoken language, I think it's hard to appreciate that. Um, and, I mean, I've lived in France and Italy and know the difficulty in speaking the language and trying to navigate just how things work. I mean, how do you get an, an appointment with the dentist? How do you communicate with the dentist? How do you fill out these forms? I mean, it's, it is a challenge. And so Especially these guys... Coming from such an underprivileged background that they came from, they weren't even exposed to regular care in their own country, let yeah. alone in a new country. Right, you throw that into the mix. And it's a, it was a formidable challenge for these guys. And then they're being greeted with this racism and derided as being stupid because they don't speak the language. I mean, it was, it's amazing as many stuck around as they did and that they thrived, uh, you know, those who did, the Roberto Clementes and Juan Marshalls and uh, Interesting others. movie about the modern uh, way of that uh, called Sugar. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, very good. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I didn't see the whole thing, but I saw it from the point that where he eventually just stayed in New York City. Instead yeah. of instead of uh, continuing in the Kansas City Royal system, I think it yeah. was. And for me, I was like, you know, watching. I'm like, oh, that I, he quit, you know. But but it, it represents a whole a whole thing that I can't even understand. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what was the uh, reaction of the other Giants and the Giant fans to Mays? Because I remember I Mays sort of was looking after, after the incident. He went over to Roseboro, who was sort of confident, and 
Yeah, there. Um, Mays was one of the peacemakers, and I think he was, you know, fearing that a riot was going to break out. And he saw the blood, and he um, he and Roseboro were friends. And he saw the blood in, in Roseboro's face coming down from his gash, and he thought, Johnny. He, he said, Johnny, your eyes out. He thought that Marshall had knocked out uh, Roseboro's eye, and so he said, Come on! And he led him over to the trainer first, and the trainer is wiping his head with a towel. And this is a little bit this. You can see on YouTube, this cl- the clip is there. Um, and they played it in the Bob Costas episode, too. Um, and so Roseboro's getting tended to by the trainer, and then suddenly it's like he remembers how angry he is. <laughs> and he rushes <laughs> back into the practice and goes after Marshall another time. <laughs> and then Preston Gomez pulled him away. But then I think it was at that point that, that uh, uh, Mays let him off the field. So, um, But anyway, the fans... Um, when Mays came to bat then, you know, finally order was restored, the police ringed the stadium, Marshall was kicked out of the game, and um, Roseboro wanted to continue, but Walt Alston told him, no, you got to go get that taken care of. So uh, the two guys, players go to the, the uh, clubhouses, and the police are there blocking the doorways and stuff. Well, finally the game resumes, and when William Mays came to bat, the San Francisco crowd booed him for having, you know, intervened and, and crossed, you know, kind of the party lines to... To intervene, but then Mays hit a home run to win the game, and I think that restored some of the feeling toward him. But I don't think the teammates had any problem with it. I, I think the teammates, you know, the Giant teammates were defending Juan. Yeah, and and they were, you know, thinking Roseboro started it. Yeah. Just a reminder: Yeah, he actually. I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? Because if you can think of one player that Dodger fans wouldn't want on their team, Juan Marshall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that team seemed to work out. But uh, Marshall had retired. He played with the Red Sox in '74. He had a bad uh, back, and so he didn't do real well. And he thought, "Okay, I'm done." And the, the Red Sox released him, so he thought, "I'm done." He's home in the Dominican Republic. Ralph Avila, his buddy, who's a scout for the. the uh, Dodgers comes over and says, hey, you know what, they, the Dodgers need another pitcher because Tommy John was having his surgery, right? So they needed a fourth <laughs> starter. And so uh, Avila says, why don't you, you know, go give it a try? And he's like, no way, I, I'm not going to play for the Dodgers. But then he started thinking about it, and I think he you know, still had that competitiveness in him, and like most professional athletes still wanted to play, you know, and thought maybe he could. And I think he also thought, if I do well in Los Angeles, it'll help restore my image, you know, and it'll be sort of a healing. Um, well, unfortunately, he had two lousy outings, and afterward he went to Walter O'Malley and said, I can't take, and Fred Clarence said, I can't take your money anymore. You know, I'm, I can't take your money at all, and I'm, I'm quitting. He retired after just the two starts. But when, when the Dodgers made the announcement that it was being hired, yeah, you have the photo there, yeah. and um, People were just up in arms. I mean, they call him public enemy number one, right? Yeah, because not only was the Roseboro incident, which was the worst, but he also hit Bill Buckner and had a fracture of him, put Willie Davis in the hospital, Marshall had. And so, I mean, Dodgers, and, and the Dodgers never beat him in candlestick. And so, you know, he, he'd beaten up the Dodgers in a lot of ways, and the L.A. fans didn't want to see him in uh, Dodger blue. He's only Catholic on Sundays. 
<laughs> yeah, there's actually there's a great caption on the there's a, this great photo of Walter Alston and Marichal together. Wait a second, no, sorry, I want to address that. No, but I gotta say something because that's it's, it's the rights of Marichal and not fair to Catholics because um, <laughs> no, I'm serious. But we gotta think about this, okay? Because what if that had been a comment about a Jew? You know, that wouldn't be funny. And it's not funny about a Catholic either. Because, and I think this is, we, if we're going to confront um, racism and, and bigotry and prejudice, we have to find it in ourselves first and, and, and become aware of it. And then watch how we act out of that. And I don't mean to preach, but I just, this has been a process for me. I mean, I'm not Jewish, but I wrote this book about Greenberg. And I tell you, I cried at times hearing how he was treated. And Marshall, being a dark-skinned Latino, the way he was treated. John Roseborn, African-American, the way he's treated. And I think part of the, my mission in writing books like this is to give people a chance, like Atticus Finch says, you know, when his kids are teasing Buretti, it's like, unless we walk around inside the skin of someone else, we have no right, we, we can't understand what it's like for them and who they are. And I mean, I, I feel like I'm pretty quite right? You understand that. But, but it's like, I think humor is a way that we sometimes kind of say nudge, nudge, you know what I mean? And, and we reinforce stereotypes or prejudices that we have almost unwittingly. And so I think, you know, the first step can be to challenge us and say, hey, wait a minute. Because I think Marshall was a devout man seven days a week. I think, like any of us, he made a mistake in the heat of a moment, and he, he regretted that. Um, so... And I'm not Catholic uh, either, I but I... I disagree. The difference between coming in high and tight and hitting. Marichal hit. Yeah. The difference. And that, that's not a very Christian way to go about this. Kovacs well, did as a rule. There were exceptions, but Kovacs did not hit as a rule. Even when he threw the ball over Mesa's head, it wasn't just by Mesa's ear. It was over his head. Right. Right. But Marichal was a competitor, and I don't think that's unchristian. I mean, maybe hitting guys with a baseball, yes, I would agree. Not, not, not good. But the... The um, fact that he was, you know, merely a competitor and beat the Dodgers, uh, I don't think there's anything no. more about that. I'm familiar with the beanball rules, etc. I never really thought about the catcher's role. Was it unusual that, like, Roseboro thought to do what he did? Is that something that some catchers were more likely to take as part of their onus off the pitcher and do it? Absolutely, very unusual. I mean, Marshall wasn't expecting it at all, and. I mean, I'm not aware of other incidences of a catcher throwing a throwing like that at a batter. Uh, I mean, is anyone else? I, I, I don't know that it's ever happened before. I mean, it may have, but I'm just not aware of it. So you can imagine Marshall's shock and surprise, right? And then, you know, three feet away, I mean, as, as Lon Simmons, the Giants broadcaster, said, you know, Marshall used a, a lethal weapon with a bat, but so did Roseboro. I mean, had he wanted to, you know, had Roseboro wanted to hit Marshall, and had he hit Marshall, boom. Marshall had that little tap on you before the ear flaps, and he could have done serious damage that way. So, yeah. I'm sorry, are you suggesting that the player gets hit, he has the right to take the bat out of the non attack picture? Because that seems to be what he's saying. Just the fact that he buzzed his ear does not excuse taking the bat to the head. No, I'm, I said earlier I don't excuse it, but I think it helps us understand why he acted as he did. Yes. Yeah. Did did Marshall pitch in Los Angeles after? Yes, he did. Not that year. Yeah, yeah, not in '65, but he did later. Was a lot made of it every time he went back there, or, 
Well, the fans certainly didn't let him forget it. And, I mean, he got, um, he got a lot of hate mail afterward, and, he, and the fans booed him everywhere. But certainly in L.A., yeah, they let him have it. I mean, he paid a price. Yeah. Did they have to do bodyguards and whatnot? I don't think so, no. Not that I'm, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. And what you're saying is true. That, um, it shows, you know, in Bob Pass back that Lou Johnson was very upset about it. It was Lou Johnson... Was very good friends with John Rose. Yeah, he was his first friend, and they were taught it. And by the way, Lou Johnson also was in TV Cowboy in Africa with Chuck Connors, who was with the ball player. <laughs> but the other thing is, on the list of notes, when you talk about you know hatred, Dodgers, you know, Yankees, Red Sox, or like roller derby, Chiefs and Bob, you know, there's always rivalry. You know, like Patriots and Bills and football. But the thing is this: on the list of notes, Tom Haller um, was a um, a giant, and he went to the Dodgers, and he said that'd be better because. Dodger Stadium was bigger, and he'd be hitting less than, I guess, San Francisco, you know, in San Francisco, Candlestick Park, they liked it better, because the wind at Candlestick hurts catches three ways. You have to squint, and you, you throw tails off, and yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a lot of Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> That's the official scouting report. I <laughs> there is a, um, the film that, that we have coming out on the baseball in Monte Park, India, the coaches from Major League Baseball went over there, they've been playing since World War II on their own, but they didn't have anything for them because they were so isolated. So when the coaches got over there and to, to certify the coaches that, that were there, then they came to understand the rules they'd been playing under. And so when we were doing the Q&A with our coach you know, a couple of months ago, and he said, you know, one of the interesting things that was changed with the rules is that they pretty much had everything, you know, good. But the one rule change that they made, and Jeff was a former pitcher, he says, I actually would have really liked to have had that. They changed the rules so that if the first time you hit a batter, it was ball one. They didn't take the base to the second batter. Was second time. He was like, as a pitcher, he says, we would have loved that rule change. He was ashamed that they said, oh, but we can't do that. <laughs> Any other uh, questions before we run out of podcast time? Well, you... Uh, once again, you follow you. You made me cry in the Hank Greenberg book. So you cried writing it. I cried yeah. reading it. <laughs> there we go. And I didn't know how you were going to follow it up, but you followed it up beautifully with this, as people could tell from the the few passages that you read. Which normally yeah. I don't like the authors to read from their books, but it was so beautiful that it, it's clear how beautiful uh, this book is as well. And uh, so for those listening and those here, which we'll be selling the book here. The Fight of Their Lives, How Juan Marichal and John Roseborough Turned Baseball's Ugliest Brawl into a Story of Forgiveness and Redemption by John Rosengren, published by Lions Press. Thank you so much, John. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, thanks very much to Jay. I love what Jay's doing here with the author series and the events and the store. I mean, I love coming in here. I've stopped in when I'm, you know, in town not doing an event just to staff in. Um, but thank you very much for coming, too. I know you have other things to do. And so uh, it, I always like going out, as I told Tom beforehand, you know, I sit and I write a book and I think, is anyone going to read this or is anyone even going to care about this, you know? But then uh, to be able to come out and talk with people about it and hear their stories or your stories, it's, it's especially gratifying. So thanks very much for coming out and for telling your stories. I understand you're going to be on the Locate Show tomorrow. Yeah, I will, at 1240. How do you know that? I'm sorry, I heard it today. I heard the name. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. They know everything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs>